And so this is definitely the furthest in advance that we've ever <laughs> recorded anything. <laughs> yes, and now now that I know that you're focused on friendship for the season, it probably would have been better for you to be able to run it sooner. But I appreciate you holding it. Hey, welcome to Marginally, a podcast about writing, work, and friendship. I'm Olivia, a consultant living in Ukraine and London, working on a novel and daydreaming about lots of other projects. And I'm Megan, a librarian and freelance indexer, writing about complex women's friendships for both young adult and adult audiences. In today's episode, we are very excited to share with you an interview that we did with Lydia Denworth, who has a new book out about friendship. We really enjoyed this book, and it is out tomorrow, so you can all get it, either pre-order it, obviously, or just get it tomorrow. Lydia started her career in news magazines and freelancing for women's magazines, but has more recently gravitated to writing primarily about science. She's visited brain imaging labs and baboon troops in Kenya, and written about everything from Alzheimer's to zebrafish, which we actually touch on later in the interview. She is now the author of three books of popular science. The first, Toxic Truth, told the story of how a scientist and a doctor risked their careers and reputations to sound alarm bells about how lead was contaminating our environment and endangering children. The second, I Can Hear You Whisper, is the story of her investigation into hearing, sound, brain plasticity, and deaf culture after she learned her youngest son couldn't hear. Today, we're talking about her third book, which is called Friendship, the Evolution, Biology, and Extraordinary Power of Life's Fundamental Bond. This is an excellent book about the health and scientific data about quality relationships, and it will definitely make you think about relationships in your life. This book was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. She is a contributing editor for Scientific American, and she writes the Brainwaves blog for Psychology Today. Her work has also appeared in The Atlantic, Newsweek, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Time, Spectrum, and many other publications. We love talking to her, uh, and we think that you will find this discussion very fascinating, as is her book, as we already said. Uh, it is out tomorrow, so that's January 28th, 2020, and we strongly recommend that you check it out. You can also check out her website, LydiaDenworth.com where you can also sign up to her newsletter, which has lots of interesting information and more kind of behind-the-scenes look at her writing process and other aspects that didn't make it into the book. So we hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. So maybe you could start by telling us why you got, like how you got interested in the topic of friendship and tell us about the book that you've just put out. Yes, I am a science journalist as you've said. And I mostly cover the brain. I cover neuroscience and psychology, although I cover, you know, whatever they assign me to do. But I, I spend a lot of time at neuroscience conferences. <laughs> and, um, and you wouldn't automatically think friendship. But what what I discovered is that in the field of neuroscience, people are really starting to think about social, the social side of life, the social part of our brain, which is in fact a huge part of what our brain does is figure out how to recognize and and understand and listen to and um, make sense of the other human beings in our world. And, and when I was sitting at a social neuroscience conference, which is a relatively new thing for there even to be such a thing, I, I just was so struck by how much our relationships with the people in our lives affect us viscerally, physically. And and what I was hearing about was how they affect our biology and how there's an evolutionary side to this. And now social neuroscience talks about all kinds of relationships, but one of the things that jumped out at me was how important friendship seemed to be and that it was getting kind of a new hearing, I guess you could say, from scientists who, you know, from neuroscientists, from evolutionary biologists, from from a different a different ilk of scientists. And, and also, uh, as it happened, when I was sitting at this particular conference, I was at a point in my life where, you know, my, my, I have three boys and they were teenagers going off to college. And my mother 
suffers from Alzheimer's disease. And so I was feeling quite buffeted by the people in my life, but also recognizing that I was at this moment in midlife when my kids were growing up and my I was losing my parents. And oh boy, shoot, I really better make sure I've worked on those friendships, right? <laughs> you know, I have my lovely husband, but, uh, but you know, I, who will I be hanging out with? And, uh, and I think this is true of so many of us when you're in the really busy phase of raising families and or, you know, building up your profession, that it can feel very hard to give adequate time to your friends. And you always think that that's coming later uh, and that, you know, but it but what I was realizing sitting in this uh, listening to scientists talk about it is, oh, no you need to be on this now. <laughs> Everybody, there is no, you know. So so anyway, I was both personally and kind of professionally and intellectually interested in this whole new idea and of studying social relationships in this other way. And, and that led me in the end to deciding that what, you know, that there needed to be a real, a book about the biology and evolution of friendship. And I think it's the part of friendship that has been hiding in plain sight. Everyone thinks they know how important friendship is, but there's so much we don't know about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I Well, and I was totally, I mean, the book is really fascinating. So uh, everybody should read it. It's written in a really clear and understandable way, but lots of science, which is like the perfect mix for me. It's definitely what I love to read. So Love uh, to that hear that. <laughs> short, short advert at the ad in the middle of our podcast. Um, will you tell us maybe about kind of what the book looks at specifically and uh, it maybe something that was like a surprise to you when you were learning it? Oh, gosh, there was so much that was surprising. That was, I mean, I guess I was as guilty as anyone of thinking that I, I knew about friendship. Um, and I mean, I will say this, that the the sort of big picture thing that the book is about is is the the you could call it the evolution of knowledge the 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 kind of recognition that these social relationships that we have are something that is really important to understand and i'm sort of track how scientists began how that how that knowledge grew and and became sort of more serious over time um i mean at one point uh there was a primatologist who wrote a paper called um, Using the F Word in Primatology. And the <laughs> F Word is, in fact, friendship, because at that point it was, you know, it was just beginning to be kind of bandied about, but people thought it was, um, it wasn't serious science, right? It wasn't getting respect. So anyway, I, um, I track the how we came to understand just how important it is, which I do think is, I was a history major in college, actually. I didn't study science. Um, I morphed into a science journalist mid-career, but but I'm always interested in the history of ideas and of thinking and of, of a kind of recognition. But the book also um, really tracks friendship across the lifespan. And um, I partly did that as a structural, since this is a writing podcast, people might be interested that, you know, that gave me a beginning, middle and an end uh, to, you know, to follow. But also, it it allowed me to, um, to talk about all the different parts of life when and how friendship works at these different times. And it's not just friendships. I mean, to understand friendship, you need to understand that relationships matter and that they matter mm. in this biological way. But I guess of the things that surprised me, perhaps one of the one of the very specific things in terms of health was that that geneticists have now figured out how loneliness, the flip side of friendship, gets down into your cells mm. and changes your immune system and makes you more susceptible to illness. And um, and the flip side that, or I, I guess I just said the flip side, but if we flip back <laughs> to friendship, having friends and being strongly bonded um, makes us healthier. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways. I mean, we're seeing so much about loneliness being this big public health problem, and it absolutely is. But one thing I think we don't always think about is that what that means is that you need to invest in your friends in the same way that you invest in diet and exercise. And it's so, mm -hmm. if you do, hopefully you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, you know, it's not, you're not, 
I don't know. There's just something, it's so obvious and we've known it and yet we don't do it. And so I don't know if that's surprising so much as perplexing, like, you know, um, and so one of the things I hope to do is really give people deep reasons why this matters. Um, and then the other thing I'll just say is how much fun I had with the animals, because how we know this is evolutionary is that uh, once they did decide that they could call it friendship in monkeys and apes and other animals, other species, you can see that there's this universality to the the need to build strong bonds, um, not just with family, but but with friends. And it's just so fun to watch these animals, and um, but so fascinating to see how much of what they do is pretty similar to what we do. Mm. Yeah, that was, I thought that was really interesting. I was actually just telling, um, a group of friends of mine at the bus stop yesterday about the zebra fish and how yeah. <laughs> they calm down when their friends are nearby. Right. And, right. you know, it's like if it's even in fish, you know, it's not just a human development and it is evolutionary. So that was really cool. Right. But I would like to kind of back up a little bit. Um, you mentioned that, you know, kind of how you got into being interested in, in friendship and because of the point in your life where you were kind of looking around saying, you know, either, and, and, and not just, this is now like you in general, um, when people get to a point where they, some of their ties are loosening, I guess, to their circle, yes. you realize either you need to go strengthen pre-existing ties that, you know, you might've let go, or you need to make new ones. Could you talk just briefly about the actual scientific definition of friendship of a friend? that you yes. came down to? And then how do you do it? What matters? How do you do friendship? Yeah. How do you make a friend? I mean, <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, so first of all, that one of the reasons why scientists hadn't, or biologists, for instance, and neuroscientists hadn't studied friendship is because it's not so easy to define and measure. And in science, you need to be able to measure and to define. Uh, but so, that is, in fact, that is exactly what happened here is that by stripping friendship down and looking at it across species, you can get to something simpler. And it doesn't mean to say at all that what happens in zebra fish or in zebras or in monkeys is the same as what happens in humans in every regard, but aspects of it are. And so that allowed a really, the, at its simplest definition, friendship is three things. It's a, it's positive, it's long lasting. So time is a big piece of this, which I'll get to in answer to your second question. Um, and it's also got cooperation, some cooperative aspect or reciprocity to it. And that is, um, and, and that's it. <laughs> um, Sounds <it's> easy. <laughs> although, although I will also say that one of my favorite uh, lines in the book was when I discovered that that I think it was three year olds, three year olds say that it, a friend is basically um, someone who shares with you, someone who um, plays with you, and someone who doesn't hit you. And yeah. I thought, <laughs> you know, okay, out of the mouths of babes, man, they know what they're talking about. That's kind of true, right? All the way through. Uh, it's the same. And when they studied friendship across human cultures all over the world, they found a lot of those same things. It, it It's positive. It makes you feel good. Friends are there when you need them, especially in a time of crisis. And actually, interestingly, in humans, there's quite a lot of gift giving. That was one of the top four most common cultural elements of friendship, but the gifts don't have to be fancy at all. What they are is a symbolic gesture to acknowledge the tie and the relationship. So at its simplest, that's what friendship is. And and then that, I think, helps us think about how to do friendship. The, the Because one of the big messages of my book is how much quality matters. And that's one of the big messages of the, of the science. And mm. the healthiest relationships for us are those that are really high quality and the word friend is is a it's a qualifier it's it's not just categorical the way spouse or sibling i mean i can say and the reason we say sometimes that our spouse is our best friend is to add to what people know about our relationship with our spouse right to say that it's a really quality relationship and it makes us feel good. 
but it doesn't have to be with your spouse or your sibling. And so if you think about these positive relationships, to me, that's the message is if you, our best friendships are a kind of a template for all other relationships of how we want to treat people and we want to be treated. And so I, in terms of how to do friendship, there are plenty of different strategies. Some people, there are different friendship styles that I talk about in the book, but some people, you know, like to just have their one or two really close friends and other people, the other end of the scale are friends with a whole lot of people. It's not that one is necessarily better than the other, but it is, there's variation. Anything that's evolutionary and that natural selection can act on is going to have some variation naturally. That's, that's um, the way it should be. But what I think is really interesting is, first of all, that there are always those universals like I talked about before, um, but that, but that also um, you, that, so you do you, <laughs> with friendship, I guess is partly what I'm saying. But you really, really, really have to put in the time. Um, mm. Time is is a critical piece of this. And you have to work on the positive side of it. So my my sort of, I guess my ultimate message is really work to prioritize the quality relationships in your life, the friends that you most enjoy being with. If somebody leaves you drained every time you've been with them, I am going to say right here, I'm going to give you permission to not spend as much time with that friend. <laughs> um, you don't have to do it. Um, and it doesn't mean that they have to be out of your life entirely, but, but time is precious and we don't all have, we don't have that much of it really. And, uh, and so we should, work to build quality relationships and then the ones that are maybe a little more ambivalent we should work to make them more positive um we should you know think about it that way but also think about treating the you know your family members you wouldn't yell at your best friend for how she loaded the dishwasher would you <laughs> you know i think about that and i think maybe we really i mean of course it's different when you live with someone day in day out but i do think about the way we treat our friends versus sometimes the way we treat some family members or you know and um and that maybe we just want to um i don't know pause think about that a little that positivity point goes in a way both ways, but it was one of the things that really stood out to me when I was reading it. But like, there are two, probably two reasons that it stood out. So first of all, like the science is basically like if somebody's like, if you feel ambivalent about them, you're basically not getting the positive effect of that friendship right? effectively, right? But also uh, to your point, like maybe sometimes it's that you don't know them that well, so you don't have the bond. And so sometimes it could go both ways. So I thought that was interesting, but it was especially interesting because I think especially as Americans or English speakers, we have like one word for all of the people yeah, that we know on Facebook, right? <laughs> or whatever friend, right? Right. Uh, and in Russian, I live in Ukraine at the moment. Um, in Russian, there's different words. Basically, you could say somebody's an acquaintance, but we would never say, oh, that person's an acquaintance. Sounds really distant, but here it's normal. And you would only say that somebody's your friend if it's like genuinely somebody that you can rely on and that you don't talk to about work and, you know, all these other things. Uh, and it's much more intimate. And it made me think about that sort of small, tiny subcategory of people that you do feel really positive about. And I think that's a useful, even linguistic differentiation. It is. And it is interesting because a lot of people feel that the word friend in English has been devalued by social media. But I, I argue that it's not. It, and in fact, we're smarter than that. And we know what a real friend is. And we know the yeah. difference between the, you know, the person like the bond that the two of you have versus that friend from high school you actually are friends with on Facebook, but haven't seen on the street in 30, you know, wouldn't recognize <laughs> on the street because you haven't <laughs> seen each other in 20 years or whatever it is. Um, we know the difference. And, and, and you need all those kinds of people in your life, but you really need that core inner circle of strong, positive relationships. And they can be friends, they can be family. But my, well, my point is, they should all be friends, whether they are family as well is gravy, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I to your point about friends referring to family members as, you know, as friends, as a friend is someone you want in your life. And a family member 
you want to want them in your life, I guess. So yes, and I and I just think too that amb- the the bit about the science of ambivalent relationships is it's important to to emphasize that the researchers working on that did think that ambivalent relationships might go either way. The benefits might outweigh the negative, but really they have yet to find any biological benefit from, from it, it's those, and they define ambivalent relationships as the people about whom you have both positive and negative things to say, which is a lot of people in our <laughs> lives. <laughs> um, but the point being like, you know, just work on the, for the ones that, you know, there might be some people you decide are are not worth your time anymore, but there's plenty of others that you don't have the luxury of, of um, you know, it's my, the line of, you know, a lot of family, George Burns, the old comedian, right? He said that happiness is a big loving family in another city. <laughs> um, but so, you know, if we think about the, sometimes the ambivalent way we feel about relation, or relatives, we can't, we don't always feel free to get rid of those relationships. Friendship is less institutionalized, so that's different. But but I think you get my my point is that the from a biological point of view, and here we're talking about your blood pressure and the way your cells age and your stress level and and all these things, um, your positive relationships are going to benefit all of those things in a very fundamental way. Yeah. I mean, even down to whether or not certain genes get expressed or don't get expressed. I thought that was really fascinating. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's amazing. It's like a, um, you know, it's the nature of who you are is it is right. And, and as the, the researcher that I did that work, I mean, he says, why would your leukocytes care about, (laughs) you know, (laughs) loneliness or friendship, but they do. I mean, of course they're, they're not thinking entities, but they do. They respond. Um, and I think that's so, um, to me, that was one of the most amazing things. Because it makes sense that what you eat affects your health or that running, going for a jog, you can imagine how that could affect your blood pressure. But how can a social relationship that is entirely outside the body, like, you know, get inside your cells in that way is fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. completely. I have a question about to kind of go into a little bit more specifics, but I want to give Olivia a chance mm-hmm. to see if she has something to ask first on the more general. No, are you moving into social media? I am moving into social Great. media. Great. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> well, so right before we talked to you, she and I were talking about um, the social media chapter. And one of the observations that is in that chapter is that we used to, before the industrial revolution, we lived in you know, you were born, lived, married, died in the same place. And you had a small network of people who you were probably mostly related to, um, but not all. And it didn't change much. Um, and then with the Industrial Revolution and kind of more mobility, we those village-type uh, relationships, those long, lifelong village-type relationships started to weaken and dissolve and kind of the whole map of things changed. But that the, the joke about, you know, Facebook is where friendships go to like, not quite, almost never die. <laughs> not quite die. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That it's the internet and social, social networks and media have kind of brought back that village feeling again, down to the negative effects of, you know, gossip and people knowing things about you forever and all of that. But at the same time, like, even though we're still physically mobile, I guess is where I'm going. And I have to say that I think, you know, the social media chapter was the most surprising one for me because you it's reported all the time that it's terrible, it's ruining everything, it's ruining our kids, it's ruining our relationships. And could you just talk a little bit about how much, you know... Why it's not? Why it's not and (laughs) what's there. Right. It's, yeah, I agree. I I found this really interesting too. And I'll, I'll say that so many people, when they heard I was writing a book about friendship immediately would say, oh, well, are you going to talk about how terrible social media is for friendship? And I didn't know. I, I hadn't done the reporting and I was a little bit dreading it because it felt like such a, I don't know, such a snake pit, <laughs> you know? Um, and then I was really surprised to discover as I worked on it and it, 
just that the, I really did feel there was a pretty clear story emerging that it just isn't as terrible as everybody has made it out to be. And I did a couple of freelance articles about this for Scientific American, too, and for Psychology Today. And so I explored it in a bunch of ways. And it's not to say, let me be clear, there are people for whom social media is is a problem, a problem for health, a pro- mental health and, and things. But what's, what is becoming obvious is that the just big picture, the alarms, the, the, the kind of monster of the week stuff that, you know, oh God, kids are, kids are, you know, this is terrible and they're all depressed and anxious. And, you know, it's, it's the worst thing that ever happened to us is just not true. And, and now there's different ways that social media's effect on well-being get measured. But the thing that is the most positive is its effect on our relationships. And I thought that was really interesting. And people who have bigger networks online tend to have uh, bigger networks offline. And in fact, I guess that's one of the really interesting takeaways is that, um, that we should we should work a little harder to understand that who we are online and our friendships and relationships online are or how we're acting online is usually a reflection of what's going on in our offline lives and mm. so that's you know when i said that there are people who are who are negatively affected often what they're finding especially with teenagers is that they're already having problems in their in their lives. Um, maybe they're more susceptible or they're actually suffering from depression and anxiety already. And, and that's an issue that needs to be dealt with, but we can't just sort of tar and feather all social media in, you know, with that brush, we need to do more nuanced work on figuring out for whom it's an issue. But for the rest of us, I mean, who, if you're an average person with, you know, it's a little bit like we were, I was mentioning earlier that, you know, we might have different friendship styles and that is completely reflected um, on in our social media lives that so if you are a discerning, if you're if your friendship style is discerning, maybe you have a smaller network. But if you're but if you're acquisitive, then you work harder to keep up your older relationships. And as you pointed out that there's we think a lot has changed but in many ways it hasn't but you hit on the part that has changed which is the the sort of keeping of those more distant relationships i mean before right when you graduated from high school or college or you moved cities for jobs you those relationships often went by the board and maybe you didn't want them to but it's very hard to maintain all those friendships and now Facebook and Instagram and everything make it pretty easy. For me, I have found that to be quite a positive. I I tell the story in the book about going to my college reunion and actually having much more meaningful conversations with people that I follow on Facebook because I, we could skip over the, the small talk and those people are not going to be in my inner circle ever. And that's fine. But you know, I didn't have to have the same 25 conversations that, you know, at the, at the event. You've all been there, right? And um, and it really, there are real benefits to social media, especially for older adults, keeping them connected with family and friends in a way that didn't used to be possible. And so, I just think there, there are some real benefits and it's, there are costs, but there are benefits, and relationships are are one of the places that those benefits exist. And so we we need to we need to be a little bit um, you know smarter about about how we think about it. And um, and and yeah, just not quite so fearful automatically of technology changes. I think yeah, I, that really resonates. On a lot of levels, I think so. Megan and I are both sort of late thirties, and so we're in that generation that you can still remember going online and maybe having a public life that still felt intimate. And so I think some of what people complain about, especially our age, which let's be honest, like we're potentially like a large part of the people who are um, commenting right in media or whatever, like p- our peers generationally are writing the articles about how bad social media is or whatever, is that you feel that you've lost this place that was like open and genuine but still small right and so you could basically easily find all the people that you actually liked. basically you had the high quality friendships online and now it's like 
you live in that crappy village you thought you escaped. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say we also had high quality friendships in those that formative adolescence because Facebook didn't come out until after we were through with college. Yeah. So, I mean, just after, uh, you know, a couple of years after, but still we had that formative experience of, of making those close, intimate friends um, without the internet. Yes. And actually that's a, it's a really important point that I just want to make sure I emphasize because one of the things I want is for parents to think a little harder about how they handle their kids' social lives or how they think about them. And it's so easy to kind of flip out about social media. And we need to be a little more discerning and critical and try to look at what the kids are actually doing because a lot of them, like I have all three boys, I have boys in my house. So video games rule my house. Um, but I have come to understand that for boys, video games are um, massively social. Actually, the vast majority of boys, I, I'm forgetting the exact statistic, but it's in the 80 percent, 80 to 90% range, don't play video games by themselves. They play with their friends. They either... Mm in the same room or over internet connections. Uh, but that's, um, it, it's doing the same it, in a way they're putting in the hours to build relationships just like we did before that was the way we did it. You know, we had other ways of, of spending time. Kids need to spend time with their friends. If they're only on social media and they're passively using it and they're never actually getting together with those friends in any other way, then that's where you start to wonder what's going on. But but parents need to at least make that, do that job of, of asking that question. But so, but yes, we, if, you know, the, the point is everybody needs to put in that time, especially when you're, when you're a teenager, those are such formative relationships. And as, you know, the science makes clear, your brain actually is operating differently as a teenager and those you know what feels good when you're a teenager actually did feel better <laughs> like that mm -hmm. time you spent with your friends was really special for a whole lot of reasons and and so that is why it sort of lasts on but but I would argue with my teenagers that they have incredibly strong bonds with their friends and that it's just they do it differently than we do. But anyway, that isn't I'm, I'm getting off of my little bit of my hobby horse here, but I feel it really strongly. I know you were talking about your own life, not about teenagers so much, but um, I just think it's really important that we stop and we take a step back and and look at how they're spending their time. Are they together? Are they bonding? And if they are, then that's great. Yeah. And I think I mean, it applies to us as well. Right. Like, I think it's easy to take this all or nothing approach, partly maybe like biologically or socially we feel like the internet and all of social media is still new in a way so it's easy to be like oh this is bad but okay it's also here and not that likely to leave and so then you can go on from that right and yeah yeah and then I mean that same typical that same approach also makes sense and obviously there's like campaigns now about you know unfollow anything that isn't making you feel like mentally okay right um about body image or something like that. But it's also sort of think about, well, and this bridges into something that Megan and I were also talking about right before this, um, is that on writer Instagram, which we're most familiar with, or writer Twitter, um, I'm less familiar with that. Um, but people are really, like, you really want community. That's one of the things that people are really wanting from social media. And I'm not that convinced that it can take you that far down that road. I think it can help you to find some of your people but like it doesn't solve that need for community and then it sort of feels like there's nothing after that like we need to think about what happens after you meet online right and it's definitely true that um that the people with the strongest bonds they're bonded offline as well with those people that is not the only way in which they're interacting with those friends and i think obviously there are some situations where someone lives in a really rural place or is or is disabled in a way that doesn't allow them to physically get out as much and so it serves a different purpose but for most of us it is really important you're absolutely right that that you can get some of that community online but then you need also to supplement it offline and and i think i i'm not at all arguing that face-to-face -face interaction is not important it's critical and and that but that 
I think social media serves a purpose and, and a lot of what it does is positive on that front. As long as we aren't overselling what it is, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, <laughs> there's been a lot of hype and then there's been a lot of hysteria and the answer as it almost always is, is somewhere in the middle, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 No, sorry. I wasn't saying that you were saying that, but I, I just think it's like, I think that's useful to think about it as like a potentially generally positive thing that then, but it doesn't solve all your problems. And so then you still need to think about how do you make a community or how do you whatever, have something more private. Right. Absolutely. You need to, you need to work outside of social media on, you need to always be thinking about, it's like concentric circles come up in the book a lot that I, you know, you, the people you interact with, the community that you have, you, you, it's, it's like multiple channels, I guess. Let's put it that way. You need to have multiple channels. Social media is just one for community. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, uh, I am curious about friendship and creativity, right? Like you talk about your friend, Sarah, who's, I think your freshman, your roommate, um, and your own personal friends, but like, you know, just in general, like, I mean, do you have any, this isn't explicitly part of your book, but I'm just curious if you have any observations or thoughts about how like friendships relate to creativity um, and either from your own life or from your research. I do. I mean, as a freelance writer, I'm a full-time freelance writer. So I, um, you know, I live in a vacuum. <laughs> I work alone. I so rely on my friends to help me think creatively, to help me um, I don't, you know, when I get stuck to talk through things with me and I do have to then kind of schedule that time with them. Um, sometimes mm-hmm. it's, um, so I actually do have, I have two accountability buddies that, uh, <laughs> Leah and Suzanne. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the interesting thing about this is that they were friends from college and we're a long way out of college now. And it's only recently, a few years ago that we started this, we email each other once a week. And what I really love about it from a creativity point of view is that what we realized was that all three of us were involved in creative endeavors, but they're slightly different. Um, mm. Leah is an artist and Suzanne writes fiction and yeah. I write nonfiction. And yet what what was we were all we all had big projects that with goals. So we had to do very concrete things of, you know, um, I'm. I'm scheduled. Here's our, you know, the way our particular system works is that every weekend you write an email that says, here's what I did last week and here's what I'm planning to do next week. But we also respond to each other's ups and downs and celebrate, you know, victories and agonies. And, um, and then we've looked at each other's work. I mean, of course, with Leah's art, it's, it's a different, um, she sends pictures or, you know, but, um, it, it has been such a lifeline to have to feel like there was this sort of support of our creativity and our, and yet also about being disciplined and professional about it, you know, and moving it forward and understanding people who could understand the challenges and the, and the excitement of it is, is very special and rewarding. Um, And then I have some other people who, I have my my friend Moira, who I mentioned in the book too, is a is also a journalist. That's how we met uh, twenty five mm-hmm. years ago, and so she I give her lots of pages just to read because she can read them with that eye of you know thinking as a writer and an editor, and mm-hmm. and that's really important. I'm not sure if that's what you're thinking about in terms of creativity, but but also just sometimes just bouncing ideas around with someone. If I and I I did a lot of times. As a science writer, my problem is sometimes that I get down in the weeds a little too much (laughs) or I'm (laughs) tempted to. So I would use my friends as a way to say, is this interesting to you, you know, or how, (laughs) what part of this really speaks to you? And, um, and that helped to kind of channel me in the right directions. Yeah. I, any answer is good. I liked, I thought that was, I think it's interesting to hear about people's friendships because again Megan and I have observed that not that many people sort of talk about it but I think it is a really big part of creative and writers lives because it could be really solitary otherwise it is and and I find when you're I mean I had some I had some dark nights of the soul in the middle of this project you know as we all do we have a 
<laughs> as happens. I mean, I thought I am never going to figure out how to do this right or how to make this good or, you know, and, um, and, um, you just, you do, you need, you need to bounce stuff off of people. You need to talk to people. I think, I mean, you also have to sit down and do the work. There's that, <laughs> but then, then you need to discuss it. And, um, for me, it's, yeah, it's, it's an essential piece of what I do. And I've, and I, I think I have come to realize how much more essential it is. So now I kind of build it into my life a little bit more than I did before, um, as a, as a freelance writer. Um, well, what I think is interesting about that is one, the, the relationship that you're describing on the surface just sounds like, Oh, it's a standard, you know, writer's accountability critique group. Um, but it also meets all of those characteristics of friendship that scientists describe, you know, it's it does. positive. It's there's time invested in it. You know, you have a regular schedule. It's all those things. Um, and it is reciprocal yes, and cooperative it's and it's, it's mutually beneficial. And, and it, and yes, it, it has an interesting, we go back decades and yet also we invest time in the present. And, and what I like about it is that also when I, I'm struck by how we, we were good friends in school, but we actually hadn't, these are not the people I'd seen the most in the years since I graduated from college, but because of this creative bond, that's why this has worked so well, I think. And we sort of, it's like we refound each other, which is a reminder of how um, those old relationships um, they may come back to the fore in nice ways that you that you don't always expect. Um, yeah. Like finding that thing in your closet that you were going to throw out and you didn't. And then you're like, actually, this is great. <laughs> this really <laughs> looks good on me. <laughs> I feel a little bit like that. It's like, oh, I went shopping in my own friend closet and look who I found. <laughs> yeah. Well, it really kind of mirrors. I mean, Olivia and I have always, well, we... It's funny, we actually were not friends um, when we first met, <laughs> but <laughs> we ended up like thrown together as like the only two people who um, showed up for another mutual friend and that kind of somehow there was some sort of alchemy at work there um, Yeah, that put us in a- Showed up in a time of need? Well, showed yeah. up, but there was, it was just somebody had invited a bunch of people and everybody said they would go and then nobody showed up but the two of us. Ah. Um, showing up, I think showing up, by the way, is like the number one thing that you do for your friends. So that's lovely. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, it, that that's and, yeah and there was just something I think about the two of us each independently showing up for a third person. It's that Tom, Dick and Harry's relationship, you know, not only Dick and Harry's friendship or rely on their genetics, yes. but it also relies on Tom, who's just like this totally separate person. Um, yes. And I don't know, there was just something about that particular situation. And then, of course, we ended up spending time together in this very small group. And um, but we so we stayed, we were roommates for a year, we wrote letters, we stayed in touch by email, we visited after graduation, um, when we could. But it really wasn't until we started this podcast three years ago. And both said, hey, by the way, I'm wanting to be a writer, um, me too, and started really sharing that way um, that our friendship has really deepened. So it is interesting that when you throw in, and I'm sure engineers will say, you know, if they're working on a project together, um, just some sort of mutual or shared work can add another dimension. Um, but there's a lot of emotion to creativity that I don't know, my brother will probably argue that there's emotion to engineering, but he's not here, so. <laughs> <laughs> and also, I actually just came back from a writer's retreat uh, for four days in in Austin, Texas, and it was all women except for the facilitator. It was women I did not know before, but we, and that was really, truly sort of working on create. Everybody was working on their own things, Um you know, some of them do very different things than what I do. But I was, in my case, I was trying to kind of dig into the the human side of my science work and and write more more loosely to the writing props and things like that. 
But we bonded so much in that shared environment. And I, my mm-hmm. joke was, we've put in the hours necessary. There is, by the way, I think you saw this, that there are actual like hours 80 that somebody and, figured yeah. out. Right. 50 to call an acquaintance a friend. And then it's 200 to call someone a best friend. You know, obviously, these, you know, it can vary, but not by a lot. You know, that mm. you just... And Aristotle, I thought it was lovely. I mean, one of the things I love is Aristotle was very wise about friendship and what he said back in the day has turned more true than he ever knew. But he did say things like, you know, that the desire for friendship comes quickly when you meet someone you like, but but friendship itself takes time. Mm -hmm. You have to still put in the time. And so we got a jump start on the weekend (laughs) by being together for days and days of creative thought. Um, So, and I think when you allow yourself to be free creatively with people and also take risks, that, that is a way of bonding. That's, um, that's a little different from your average sort of talk on the sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think, I mean, to be fair to the engineers in the audience or whatever consultants like me, um, (laughs) like you can, you end up in a really tough project, uh, but you have a good team, like you bond kind of exponentially more than you do if you just sit next to each other all day at the office, right? So that makes a lot of sense. Oh, and the friendships, right, shared struggle. The friendships among the scientists that I spent time with were lovely. Um, And Mm -hmm. um, I loved the one, the two in North Carolina um, meeting at the, meeting at at the conference Yes. Um, yes. And then visiting each other's, ho- you know, homes and covering the walls with paper and notes. And- right. Exactly. And um, and they, you know, I wanted I wanted ways to show friendship organically. Uh, that's part of why I put some of my own life in the book. Um, not because I think I'm the perfect example of friendship, but because it just felt <laughs> like a more natural way to kind of reflect how this works. But it works you know, of course, scientists, they work together and they, they too have a somewhat, some of them are somewhat solitary. I mean, if you work in a lab or mm. if you work in the field as a field biologist, you you can spend a lot of time alone. And it was so striking how much fun they had though then at night in the field camps, you know, <laughs> drinking wine and joking about the baboons or whatever it was. And, uh, and those, they made lifelong friendships too. So, um, so yes, it's not at all to say scientists and engineers aren't creatively building bonds and whatever it is. Yeah, I think, can I ask a rambly question that either, if you don't like it, you can, we don't have to keep it in the podcast. <laughs> so, um, but one of the things I'm curious about is whether, like, there are more and more diverse scientists, right? And I think, like, it was striking to me that it's part of the structure. So there are a couple of different kind of, it's like a matrix structure in a way, of uh, different themes that you had but one of them was this sort of evolution of um, how people have thought about this over the over time and how it's only really become interesting recently so I'm sort of wondering if part of that is because there are like different perspectives in science where people are suddenly like hey emotions or feelings or relationships actually matter it's not just like numbers and what you can do in the lab so that's one question and then there's a second part but I forgot what it was so yeah (laughs) that absolutely uh, i think that the the bit in the book that gets to that most directly is uh, gene altman who today is one of the sort of preeminent primatologists of her generation she's older now but um she was in the 70s you know there were not a lot of women out there i mean well actually that's not entirely true jane goodall and um mm-hmm. but well jane goodall's a good example too the women who were doing this work noticed the individual personalities of the animals they were watching. They noticed the relationships and they thought it really mattered. And what Gene Altman, who ran the, and still does, the Ambicelli Baboon Research Project, uh, where a lot of really critical work was done on understanding this evolutionary side of things, she said, you've got to watch the females. (laughs) That's where (laughs) things are really happening. And, And up to that time, this is the 70s, People were all focused on the males, and what the males were all about was competition, right, and mm-hmm. fighting, <laughs> and and um, sex and competition, basically. And the females were doing something different, and Jean 
thought that that looked really interesting, but she also knew that she needed to be in it for the long haul and see how what those females did together and how they bonded and how they interacted, how it played out, you know, what were the benefits down the line uh, Mm -hmm. in health and reproductive success and longevity. And that's exactly what she did. That's why she created um, a project that has gone on for nearly 50 years now, tracking the same sets of baboons. Now we're talking about the you know, their descendants. But um, but that was a fundamentally different way of seeing science and animals. And and, and it, it, it's a female way. Um, it has to be, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and I, I didn't talk in the book about Carol Gilligan, the psychologist, but I do think she was an important turning point in the 90s talking about making relationships more, you know, sh- uh, more important and helping to change the the lens through which people regarded the importance of relationships. But there were there were some men out there doing it. I mean, John Bowlby gets a lot of attention yeah. in the book early yeah. on because his understanding <clears throat> of that important bond between mother and child changed the way people saw relationships writ large too. It wasn't just actually about mothers and babies. It was about attachment. Yeah to all kinds of people throughout the lifespan. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I thought all of that was really interesting. So, yeah, I was just thinking about that. The other part was just a comment that a lot of times when people write these stories about relationships in art or in science or anything else, it's about competition, like similar to how you're talking about how people were studying animals. Uh, It's all about, yeah, competition, jealousy, fighting that people have, conflict. And I think like it's really great. This is not like a like a fluffy feel good book per se, but I think it's really good to focus on the way that people collaborate as well. Well, from an evolutionary point of view, what we know now, what all this science tells us is that cooperation is at least as important as competition in the evolutionary sort of story. And that's not how people saw the world before. And so that's a really fundamental difference, right? It's not to say competition doesn't matter. And it does even among friends who are, you know, both writers or something. It's one reason I think my accountability thing works, though, too, is because we're not actually in the exact same fields. So we're not Mm. really competing directly. (laughs) That does make it a little easier uh, to, you know, um, to not be jealous of somebody's success or, you know, but um, but that's also just human. And I think we do well. This is one of the ways that we are able to be different from the other animals is that we we can think we might think things and like feel jealous but then we know how to rise above that (laughs) and that is the work we have to do to make those quality relationships is to you know to always do that yeah no definitely i am very curious about just kind of the nuts and bolts of how you've talked a little bit about coming up with the structure for the book, but I mean, you did an enormous amount of research and travel and interviews and everything else in order to put all of this together. And I just thought it would be interesting to hear a little bit of how you organized it, how you kind of corralled it. Um, This, I think the pro the, the risk I mean, it's one of the reasons I love writing books. This is my third book, and I, I always, I, I'm always at risk of drowning in a sea of research, <laughs> right? And there's, and you could always do more. And I mean, I can't. I'm not even going to start listing all the things I wish I could have pursued for this further. Or, you know, um, my editor was very determined that it that it move relatively quickly as a book and keep to keep people engaged, and that it, you know. Um, uh, and that I not go too in the weeds and all of that. Uh, but which was a good, she was right. That's a good, healthy thing. Um, but, (laughs) but yeah, you know, I think there's a balance when you do nonfiction like this, you really do have to kind of let yourself get absorbed into, um, the world that you're trying to write about. And so, you know, I've spent, I went and spent time, out with the baboons in Africa and with the rhesus macaques in Puerto Rico. And that was, I mean, the trip to Africa was one of the great highlights of my journalism career, I'd say. Mm. Um, also because I 
made such good friends with the researcher I was hanging around <laughs> with, <laughs> by the way. Um, but, um, but so that was all lovely. But there was a point that I was sitting at a, a conference, a baboon conference in Germany. I happened to be in Berlin for another reason. I wouldn't have gone specifically for this. But I was sitting there and it was very interesting. But I did have that moment of saying to myself, OK, Lydia, I think you've got enough on the baboons. <laughs> you can stop now. Uh, and, you know, um, although it was in some of the it's when you're in those um, those it's actually when you when you think you have everything you need, but then I don't know, you ask one more question or you go to one more thing. Mm. And sometimes it was at that event that one of the primatologists um, told me she just said this line about somebody else about how good um, Dorothy Cheney's memory was. And she said, she's the one who told me, oh, her, you know, her family always joked that they didn't have to have bookmarks because they could just tell Dorothy what page they were on and she would remember. And <laughs> it was such a fabulous line. And it so spoke to the kind of sharpness that was Dorothy Cheney. Sadly, she, mm. she died actually last year. Um, but and I would never have got that line if I just hadn't sort of persisted in hanging around with these people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You put yeah. in that little bit of extra time as a researcher and and then you're and then you're sort of you're you're less of a journalist, you're 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 a regular presence, they know who you are and you know, you get familiar. So that's all great. But then yes, trying to the issue I had was that there was just so much to cover on this topic. And so one decision I made was by really trying to keep it somewhat focused on the biology and evolution, that's the story I think hasn't been told as much. So it made sense for me to do that. And and then it allowed me to sort of say, okay, and then there are these other things I'm just not going to get into as much. Um, although psychology's in there, sociology's in there, you know, uh, it has to be because that's also who was thinking about this. And those people are the ones who, who also sort of approached the, figured out the health um, side of the story. But so that gave me a little bit more of a narrow banding. And then um, I, you, uh, there were multiple iterations of, of structure and it was kind of when I, when I hit on the idea of, I almost think of it as two interweaving stories. So the one is the, the, the evolution of knowledge and the way we think about it, like you said, mm -hmm. and then the other is the landscape across the lifespan. And, um, that it, it, it just gave me a way to group it, but it also gave me a way to let all kinds of readers find themselves in the book and their loved yeah. ones, you know? Um, yeah. and I thought that that was the thing about science is you need the human side. Always you need to show people why this is relevant to them. And of course people will think friendship is relevant to them, but, um, but I don't know, understanding the difference between what it's like when you're two and 12 and 32 and 72 is I found, I thought, really interesting, but also structurally really useful. Yeah, yeah and I thought that was really effective uh, as well, because you're right, you do kind of think about what was I like, and it makes it more personal to you as well. Right, and if you're a parent or a grandparent, or if you're not, like, there's something for everyone in this. Um, and I have a friend who, you know, who grew up on military bases, and she said that my book... I guess this is my little plug. She said, oh, my God, I understand my whole life now <laughs> that she read the book. But it was because she hadn't really fully thought through what it meant to move around so much when she was young in those formative years and and mm -hmm. never always be the new kid and not have those. She doesn't have those sustained relationships from the early part of her life because she wasn't around long enough ever. Um, and that you know, that really has an effect on people. And, and I will just say, by the way, at the end of the book, I uh, do cover, you know, what, so what are the big takeaways? And of course, from a personal perspective, it's how we need to make sure we prioritize friendship and quality relationships with people in our world. But from a policy perspective, you know, the military, I, I, I do believe that they're, they change the way they do this so that they don't make families move 
multiple times in short order like that. And they don't uproot kids in the same way. And that's a kind of fundamental understanding of the importance of relationships and of stability that that I think was lacking. And it's where some of the science could have another another um, purpose. Yeah. And that was something I was going to say structurally that really works with your book in a way um, that makes the science itself more accessible. You know, you said you didn't want to get too into the weeds, but the way you kind of wrap each chapter in your own family or your own story. Yes. Um, and then, you know, you begin with the anecdote and then you get into the science and you end with, you know, this is how it was resolved. Um, that was really neat to read just because I have two kids who have very similar friend making. My oldest is Mr. Social. He, you know, always has a million friends the minute he comes home from his first day of school. And my younger one is he, the other day he was naming his friends and he said, you know, he gave me three names and then he stopped and he said, and that's probably all that I'll make, you know, ah, that's all that I'm yeah. going to have. And it was like, all right, you know, that is cool. That, and uh, that's totally cool. Um, but one thing that has helped them is they do tend to go to school, um, in department of defense schools. So every kid there has been the new kid or is the new kid. Yes. And so that shared, well, that common struggle, I guess, that shared thing gives them a little more openness. And I have seen friends, children, social media has been enormously beneficial because they can keep up with their friends and they can play video games with their best friend they haven't seen in five years because they can play online together. And that's really been really great for them and for their mental health. Exactly. And that's, that's, that's such, that's a perfect example because of a, of a place where it's really important that as a parent, you don't just see that they're on a video game or that they're on social media. You look at the content, who are they with and why? And if they're connecting with people they knew from the last town or whatever, that's really important. Right. And so we, um, so that's and I'm I'm really glad to hear that I'm right that that, that they have changed the policy a little bit about about that. Um, We've moved and, eight times in the last ten years, yeah, but well, you know, right. like okay. other people. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, you know, but but it's the, my point is that it is this is something that people need to think about at all. All levels, you know, yeah. individually, societally, community wide, um, and. I'll just throw in there though on that front and this is more from an individual point of view but one of the one of the things somebody said to me that stuck with me the most was uh this sociologist Lisa Berkman who was essential in this work but she says now that you know you have to think of this as like smoking if you really don't pay attention if you quit smoking at 65 it's still better to quit but damage has been done. And if you don't really focus on relationships and friendships until you're older and you think you have time, damage will have been done. And you haven't used those muscles. You haven't built those relationships. And it you absolutely can build those relationships late in life. I mean, my the end the last chapter shows that in um, beautifully, but but um, it's so much better to do it all along the way and to understand what that means um, from an individual perspective. And then, like I said, at also communities and, and even from government policy. Yeah. And there's like now 40 more things I want to discuss with you. But, we'll probably have time, but, <laughs> but one of the things like in the UK, I'm also British, uh, is that one of the big uh, impacts of the austerity policy cutting on, on housing allowance and things like that for people is that effectively they've also moved people out of communities that they've been living in or that maybe ethnically they are around people that they know and it's potentially also going to have a really long term like policy or kind of society impact in the future as well i mean there's a lot of different applications of that same piece of information yes there is you're right uh okay well (laughs) sometime we'll corner you for like a weekend and then we can (laughs) do this more Um, but thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's been really fun to talk to you and great to be able to like talk to you about your book, which is excellent and people should definitely read it. Yeah. Well, so thank you so much. Can you tell readers where um, to find you? And I mean, we'll have yes. this, of course, in the thing, but where can they get your book? What date is it? It's January 28th. Um, okay. And- 
people can get my book wherever books are sold. <laughs> uh, and there, it will be available in um, ebooks and Audible and hardcover and all that. And then eventually, uh, it's also going to be published in the UK, by the way, um, in March. Great. So, um, okay. and they can find me at Lydia Denworth on Twitter. And I have a website, LydiaDenworth.com, that has all good stuff about me and my a way to sign up for my newsletter, which I hope people will do because it's chock full of really interesting stuff and a little bit of a behind the scenes reporter's notebook and, and what I'm reading and writing and all of that. Um, but so that's the best place to go is the website to, uh, to find out how to follow me elsewhere. Very cool. Thanks. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. And, uh, we're excited to put this out. This is a really great conversation. Yeah. Great. Thank you both so much and good luck with your work. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this week. You can find us online at marginallypodcast.com and on Instagram at marginallypodcast. Our email is podcast at marginallypodcast.com. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to our newsletter. The sign-up form is on our website. And if you enjoy the show, please consider rating it and leaving a review in your podcast app and or sharing an episode with a friend. This will help us to grow our community. Thanks for listening and happy writing. Marginally is produced by the two of us, Megan and Olivia. So excuse any amateur issues. We're working on it. Theme music is It's Time by Skarika Rikaska. Show notes for every episode are available at marginallypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Marginally, you might also enjoy one of our favorite podcasts, Hashtag Am Writing with Jess and KJ. Every episode is full of great information and encouragement. Look for it wherever you get your podcasts or find the link in our show notes. Thanks for listening. Yeah, we uh, deal with ambient. No, I have lawnmowers going on outside my house and everything else. So it's just okay. part of the experience. Yes, exactly. This is real life. Lived life. Exactly. Right?